Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. I think some of you may know the answer to this. What is in the Guinness Book of World Records that holds the record for the most bitter substance on earth to human taste? Does anybody know what that is? Come on now, I know that a lot of you just sit around all day long and look at trivia things like this, right? No, it's called Bitrex. Bitrex. It was discovered in 1958 by a team of scientists who were working on a, a new local anesthetic. And so it's a substance that's in household appliances, it's in automotive appliances, it's in gardening products. It's basically put in there to ensure that animals and children don't swallow those harmful things and, and, and get poisoned. It's so bitter that they'll spit it out immediately before ingesting it. And it's in detergents, it's in window washer fluid, it's in antifreeze, it's in nail polish remover, it's called Bitrex. And it's, har- it's harmless to humans. If, if ingested, you don't want to ingest it because you can go on YouTube and watch these clips of people doing taste tests of Bitrex. It's like the most bitter thing you've ever tasted. If you take a little thimble of Bitrex and you put it in an Olympic-sized pool, 600,000 gallons, you're immediately going to smell the bitterness of Bitrex. So please don't go out there and try to consume Bitrex unless you want to be very bitterly surprised. And so in America, we like our food sweet. Most people that are foreigners say, you Americans like your food really sweet. When we take mission trips to India, the food is very spicy. But no matter what your palate is, whether you like spicy food or whether you like sweet food, Bitrex has got the Guinness Book of World Records for the most bitter substance on the planet to human taste. Now, some of you have probably tasted something bitter before and you immediately spit it out. It made your stomach turn, uh, like drinking lukewarm water. Um, nothing worse than like when you have a bottle of water that was cold at one point, and it's in your car, and you're like, I think I need to drink it, and you drink it, and it's like, it's, it's lukewarm, it's pretty gross. I wonder what the most bitter food you guys, let's just list them out. Anything bitter that you guys have eaten before? What are some bitter things you've eaten? Pickle juice. That's pretty bitter. Now, why do I bring up bitterness this morning? Things that taste bitter in your mouth. Well, the Israelites have just left the glorious shores of the Red Sea, where they had just been delivered by God's powerful hand, and now they're going to the bitter waters of a place called Marah. So let's read this little slice of Israel's history right on the heels of what we saw last week with the Song of Moses. So I want to invite you to um, Exodus chapter 15, starting in verse 22. Exodus 15, starting in verse 22. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah... They could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. 
And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all of his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. Then they came to Elam, where there were twelve springs of water and seventy palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. Now, here's the big idea for this morning's message. Here's the main point. The Lord will often test your faith by taking you through trials. The Lord will often test your faith by taking you through trials. Now, what just happened to the Israelites that we've just seen the past few weeks? They crossed through the Red Sea. It was a miracle of miracles. They're on cloud nine. So much so that Miriam's leading them and singing and dancing and the ladies are playing tambourines and they're singing this joyous, exuberant song of Moses. And yet, we see a pattern here of the Christian life and what happens to the Israelites. Where did the Israelites start out? In Egypt. They started out in Egypt. Where did God take them? He saved them by His mighty hand through a Passover lamb, through the Red Sea. And what's their ultimate destination? The promised land. But do they get there automatically? Do they go straight from the Red Sea to the promised land automatically? No, they don't. They have to go through some times of testing. Now, what's our story? As believers in Jesus Christ, where did we start out? Well, all of us were born in spiritual slavery. We were born in bondage. We were born in sin. We couldn't save ourselves. How did God save us? God saved us through the ultimate Passover lamb, Jesus Christ. And God took us through salvation in Jesus and forgave our sins. And so what's our ultimate destination? The ultimate promised land in heaven. Do we get there automatically? No, do we have to go through trials before we get to our final destination? 1 Peter 1, 6-7 says this, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We go through fiery trials, various trials, to test our faith. We don't automatically get to heaven. God ordains that we go through trials. As a matter of fact, Acts 14.22 says this, Through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. So in this little slice of Israel's history, we see a picture of the Christian life. You're spiritually born dead. Christ saves you, and your ultimate destination is heaven. But there's this period between salvation and heaven that we walk this pilgrim pathway where we have to go through trials. 
We have to go through times of suffering. We've got to go through intense periods of pain. And so let's see this episode in Israel's life unfold for us this morning in, in three scenes. Three aspects, three vignettes, three scenes that tell us about the Christian journey. And so here's the first. Scene, scene one or number one is the trial. The trial itself that they go through. And you see this in verses 22 through 23. And I hate to break this to you. Okay, so I've got a news flash for you in case you haven't learned this yet. God actually ordains for you to go through periods of trials. God actually takes you through periods of suffering. Sometimes that's part of his will for you. Now, notice very carefully what happens in verse 22. Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. That means a lot to us, right? The wilderness of Shur. You all know what the wilderness of Shur is, right? Shur. You know what the wilderness of Shur is. We don't know Egyptian geography. We don't know the topography. We have no clue where the wilderness of Shur is. It was an uninhabited, desert, rocky, ragged wasteland where there was very little water for this 200 million people to drink. So they're going into a desert wasteland. And you have to ask the question, well, how did they get there? Did they choose to go into the desert wasteland? How has God been directing them all along? With the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. So who sovereignly leads them directly into the wilderness of Shur? God leads them. They don't choose to go there. God is directly leading them into a time of trial. God is sovereignly and providentially leading them into a trial to test them, to test their faith. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon says about this. He's got great insight. He says, quote, By this grievous test, the Lord was testing his people and causing them to see what was in their hearts. They would have known no wilderness without if there had not been a wilderness within. Neither had there been a drought of water for their mouths if the Lord had not seen a drought of grace in their souls. What was in the hearts of the Israelites? Whatever was in their heart was going to come out through this time of testing. And so God takes them immediately from salvation to the shores of the Red Sea, immediately into the desert for a time of testing. And God ordains circumstances. God ordains events in your life to test you. For you to go through trials, for you to go through times of, of suffering. Peter again in 1 Peter 4, 12-13 says this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. Don't be surprised when you go through a trial. As if something weird or strange was happening to you. This is part of the Christian life. And you see, here's where the enemy, the devil, begins to play games, especially with new believers. What was the temptation of the Israelites right after they were saved? What have we gotten ourselves into? 
Why did we follow Moses out of Egypt? We could have had food back in Egypt. We could have had water. We had the Nile River, which was flowing with water. Why in the world did we leave that? Why did we leave slavery and come through salvation just to come out here and have no water? And so what the devil will often say to young believers is, why in the world did you ever trust Christ in the first place? It would have been better to stay a non-Christian. What have you gotten yourself into? And so the devil begins to play games. And so contrary to the health, wealth, and prosperity, word of faith, false gospel that you hear all over the place, it is God's will sometimes for you to go through trials. It is God's will sometimes for you to go through sufferings, to go through persecution, to go through tribulations. As a matter of fact, listen to what Jesus said in John 16, Jesus said, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I've overcome the world. You will have tribulation. You will have trials. You will have times of suffering. The issue is not if you're going to have those, it's when you're going to have those. And here's the question. (coughs) When those times come, do you really, truly trust Jesus? Do you walk by faith and not by sight. You know, it's very easy to trust God when things are going great. When things are going well, it's easy to trust God. But when things go badly, when you go through times of suffering, when you go through periods of trial, do you keep your eyes fixed on Jesus? Where, where's your heart during those times? verse 23, they come to the water. They've gone three days and there's no water. And they finally get to water. So what are they thinking? Oh, great. It's been three days. We've run out of water for our children. We've run out of water for our animals. We finally found water. And what do they do? They get down and they drink it. And what is it? Bitter. It's marah is the Hebrew word there. It's acidic. It's briny. They want to spew it out. Now, what is our natural, hardwired response to trials? How do we normally respond to trials? Isn't this the way we respond in Romans 5, 3 through 4? Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Don't we just automatically, naturally rejoice in trials? James 1, 2 through 4, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Isn't our natural response when we face trials to be joyous? Yeah, right. That's not our natural response. It's the biblical response we're supposed to have, but what's our natural response? Well, we've seen the trial. Let's see number two. The response. How do the Israelites respond? We see this in verse 24. And the people grumbled, murmured, complained against Moses saying, What shall we drink? They're grumbling. They're complaining. Now, let's just ask a couple of questions here. Was it rational? Was it reasonable for the Israelites to complain? Now, On a human level, we understand their frustration. 
We understand why they're complaining on a human level. They're out in the middle of nowhere. They're in the wilderness of Shur, wherever that is, on the backside of nowhere. No water for three days. They can't just run into a 7-Eleven or a Walmart and get a bottle of water. The Culligan man's not going to come driving up, giving them, them the bottles of water. They're, they're out there with nothing. And so naturally, and I say that word purposefully, naturally, they're grumbling. They're complaining. They're frustrated. And we understand that. But let me just ask you a question. What had they just experienced three days earlier? What had they just seen three days earlier? The greatest miracle of miracles. You talk to an Israelite that was there, the water's piled up on both sides like a city wall. And we walked through two million of us on dry land. And then the waters came back down and drowned the Egyptian army. It was a miracle of miracles. And it involved water, a lot of water. So is God able to do a lot of stuff with a lot of water? Yes. So is it a big deal for God to part water? No. Is it a big deal for God to do something with water that's bitter? Where's their faith? Spurgeon says this again. Shall it be more difficult for God to purify than to divide? To sweeten a fountain is more difficult than to cleanse an entire sea? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Where's their faith? We had just seen God do a major miracle with water. And now we're at water. And it's not a big body of water. It's a small body of water. And it's bitter. Don't you think God could do something about it? Where is their faith? So instead of going directly to God and praying to God, who do they lash out at? Well, we're going to blame the guy that's closest to God. We're going to lash out at Moses. Moses, where's the water? What shall we drink? And what's Moses going to do for them? Is Moses going to give them water? What is human nature when things go wrong? It's very easy to lash out at others who are in close proximity to us. Who often gets the brunt of our complaints? Other people. And aren't we always quick to blame others? It was the doctor's fault. He didn't catch my disease in time. It's his fault. He's the reason why I'm where I'm at today. It was my boss's fault. She didn't give me the time of day. She didn't give me the, the, the respect that was due me. It was her fault. Or maybe if you're a child, it's my brother's fault. He made me do it. He's always making me do things. Or it's my friend's fault. She's always out to get me. You know, it's very easy to lash out at others when things go wrong and use your tongue in a very powerful way to attack. And others around us that are close to us are easy targets for that attack. So when you begin to complain, instead of it's very hypocritical. Instead of going to God and praying to God, they go to Moses and they lash out at their leader. They go to those that are closest to them. Now, when we think about trials and suffering and and all those types of things. It's, it's very interesting to think about Job for a moment. Remember what happened to Job? Everything was taken away from him. In Job 1, 21 through 22, he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all of this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. The Lord gives. The Lord takes away. 
I'm going to bless the Lord regardless of what happens because he's sovereignly in charge of what happens. Job 2, 9 through 10. His wife said to him, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women who would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? And all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Job says, listen, I don't know exactly what's going on with this whole suffering thing, but I do know that God ordains the good and God ordains the bad, and we receive blessing and we receive, receive hard times from God. God gives, God takes away, and all of this, I'm going to bless the name of the Lord. Now, it's very interesting what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 6, about us and our relationship to the Israelites. 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 6, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, pillar of cloud, and all passed through the sea, the Red Sea. They were all baptized in the Moses, in the cloud, in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food. We'll look at that next week with the manna and the quail. And all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. And here's the important thing, verse 6. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. This happened as an example for us that we might not do what they did. What did they do? They complained. So what are we not supposed to do? We're not supposed to complain. Now, I want to ask you to keep your finger or you can swipe or punch in or turn, however you get there. Go to Philippians chapter 2 for a moment. We're going to come back to Exodus, but I want to show you. I want you to see it with your own eyes in the context Philippians chapter 2, verse 14. Philippians 2, verse 14. Are you ready? Do all things without grumbling or complaining. Pretty clear cut, right? <laughs> There's no ambiguity in that passage of Scripture, is there? Is there any wiggle room? Do all things without, all things, Paul? Yes, all things without what? Grumbling or disputing. Now, that's a direct command from Scripture. Okay, so I'm not supposed to complain in all things. That sounds like a tall order, Pastor Sean. It is a tall order. As a matter of fact, it's impossible. So let's look at context, context, context. What comes right before that? And so if you just take that verse by itself, it would be very disheartening. Okay, everybody, don't complain in all things. And try really hard at that. Good luck. We'll see how you do next week. That's not what Paul says. Look at what comes before it. Look at verse 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, Obeyed, obey the command to do all things without grumbling or disputing. So now, not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And here's the important verse, verse 13. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So verse 13 tells us something very, very important. God does two things in your life to help you not grumble and complain. Two things. He gives you, number one, the desire not to. 
He puts that desire in your heart not to. And you may say, that's great. I, I don't want to complain. But what happens? You end up complaining anyway, even though you may not want to. The second thing he gives you is he gives you the power or the ability not to. Notice what it says there. He works in you both to will the desire and to work the power for his good pleasure. So you have every resource in the world to you through the power of the Holy Spirit as a believer to obey the commands of Christ because God works in you the desire I want to. And the power I can do. So you and I can not complain and grumble because God gives us the power and the desire not to. He's working in us. He's working in us to give us that ability. So we must trust in the Lord, pray to the Lord, ask the Lord to give us that power, give us that ability, give us that desire not to do that. And by the way, how does our grumbling affect our witness? Well, look at the verses after verse 14. Verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing. How can I do that? Well, the verse before us tells us that God works in us to give us the desire and the power to obey. So we can trust in that resource that God gives us. But look at verse 15. That you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain vain. We shine as lights in the world when we are living the way God calls us to live. So when you're complaining, when you're grumbling, you're not shining as lights the way you should be. It is affecting your testimony. So don't complain, don't grumble in all things. God gives you the power and the ability to do that through his Holy Spirit, and that ultimately affects your witness to a watching world. Now, let's go back to Exodus. We've seen two things so far. The trial, ain't no water. Number two, the response, grumble, complain, lash out at their leader, Moses. Now, let's look at number three, the provision. We go back to Exodus verses 25 through 27. Now, why do we know this was a test? Why do we know God was testing their faith? Well, verse 25 clearly says it. And they cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree, and he threw it in the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them. It says it right there in front of you. The Lord tested them there. The Lord's testing their faith. The Lord is ordaining that they go through a trial to test their faith. But how does God provide for these whiners? He says, hey, Moses, there's a tree over there. Once you throw the tree, and that's a little Hebrew word, not a log, more like a tree. Throw the tree in the water. And what happens when they throw the tree in the water? It immediately becomes sweet. Now, was the tree magical? I don't think so. Was the tree medicinal? I don't think so. This is a miracle. we just seen the, the parting of the Red Sea. This is just another miracle. And God gives them some stipulations in verse 26. Verse 26 if you diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, do that which is right in his eyes, give ear to his statutes and his commandments, I will put none of these diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians. This is very, very important. This is before the Ten Commandments, but God's giving them some laws here. So let me ask you a very, very important question. Are you saved by works or by grace? Grace. 
Are you saved so that you can do good works? Yes. Sean, do you have a verse for that? I'm glad you asked. I do. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Very famous passage of Scripture. For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one would boast. That's the clearest passage of Scripture I know of about salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. But yet, verse 10, the verse that comes right after it, says this. For, Ephesians 2.10, we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So here's the principle of what God is teaching the Israelites, and it's the same principle for us. You are saved by grace, but once you're saved by grace, you're to walk in obedience to God's Word. You don't obey in order to get saved. You obey because you have been saved. And so the requirement here for the Israelites is to listen diligently and to do what God's telling them. To listen diligently and to do. Now James tells us something about that, doesn't James? James 1.22 But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Be doers of the word, not just hearers. Now, this requirement here is not for Israel's salvation. God had already saved them. We've got to be very clear here. God is not setting up a law here for Israel to obey in order for them to be saved. They have already been saved by the Passover lamb. They've already been saved through the passing of the Red Sea. They're post-salvation. And in the post-salvation Christian life, as you go through trials, God requires obedience to his law, to his word. And so if you're saved by grace, you will joyfully obey Jesus in good works that he prepared for you to walk in. Now, there's a wonderful description of the Lord at the end of verse 26. I will put none of these diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord, your healer. I am Yahweh Rophi. Yahweh Rophi, the the healer. God's the healer. Healer. Now, we need to be very careful here because some people have abused this passage of Scripture to teach something it doesn't teach. Is God saying here to the Israelites, because I'm your healer, I promise that you're never, ever, ever, ever going to get sick. That you're never, ever, ever going to struggle. You're never, ever, ever going to have diseases. Is that what God's saying? No. Remember, God ordains us to go through trials. And sometimes the trials that God ordains us to go through may be a sickness. It may be a disease. Now, let me just ask you some questions. Can God heal? Yes. Does God heal? Yes. Does God always heal? Is God obligated to always heal? So we need to be very careful when God's our healer, Yes, in the ultimate sense, he is able and powerful to heal. We pray for healing. We trust in his sovereign power to heal. But at the end of the day, it may be God's will not to do that because he's wanting your faith to grow. I don't know exactly how all that works. I just know that we can't automatically say because God's a healer, he's going to heal 100% of the time. And a lot of times, too, the healing comes spiritually. Psalm 103, 2-4. 
Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. So God is their healer. And what does he do? Where does he take them? Look at verse 27. They came to Elam, where there just happened to be, coincidentally, 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees. Okay, let me ask you a question. 12 springs of water. How many tribes of Israel are there? 12 tribes. So God is sovereignly providing for the Israelites with 12 springs of water for the 12 tribes, 70 palm trees for the 70 elders. Think about enough palm trees to be able to shade about 2 million people. They don't camp at Marah. Where do they camp? At Elam, where God provides for them springs of living water. Reminds me of what Paul says in Philippians 4.19. My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. God will supply every one of your needs, not necessarily selfish wants. Now, I'm going to ask you a very interesting question. As I've studied this, I thought deeply about this for a moment. Why does God not tell Moses to put his staff in the water? Hasn't his staff been used for the plagues? Hasn't his staff been used for the parting of the Red Sea? Why, does, why all of a sudden no longer the staff? God says, put a tree in the water. Put a tree in the water. I want to ask you a question about trees for a moment. Because trees are a motif that go all the way through the Bible. Where do we first see the first tree in the Bible? Back in Genesis. God told Adam and Eve, do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you will die. What happened to Adam and Eve? They ate from the tree. And what did they experience? The bitterness of separation from God. The bitterness of guilt and shame and sin. So much so they had to hide themselves. So they forfeited the tree of life. They were barred from the tree of life, which we'll have access again in Revelation chapter 22 at the end of the age. We'll have access to that. So you've got the tree of knowledge of good and evil. You've got the tree of life. What other tree do you have in the Bible? Jesus hung on a tree. On the old rugged cross, when Jesus hung there, he experienced the bitterness of God's justice against our sin. He suffered the bitterness of our guilt and shame. He experienced the bitterness of judgment that we should have experienced. But guess what? He rose again and he offers us salvation, which is sweet. Who suffered the worst of anybody in the world? Jesus, who endured the worst trial of all, worse than being three days in the wilderness and not having water? Jesus. So when you begin to grumble or complain, 
look at the cross. Think about Jesus for a moment. Because he endured the bitterness of being forsaken for our sins, we will never have to endure that bitterness. We'll never have to endure the bitterness of judgment for our sins because Jesus hung in our place. And what do we get to experience because of Jesus? The sweetness of salvation. The sweetness of forgiveness of sins. See, when you go through trials that are ordained by God, don't you ever dare think, Christian, that it's judgment. God is not judging you by taking you through trials. He judged your sin on the cross. He's taking you through trials not as a judge but as a heavenly father because he loves you and he knows what's best for you and he knows where he's taking you and he knows what's your good. And so the trials that come your way are from the hand of a father who's doing it simply because he loves you and he has the best for you. I wonder if this morning, if you're here today and you've not experienced that salvation, you in the heart of your hearts are overcome by a bitterness, a bitterness of your own sin, a bitterness of rebellion against God. You, you have a bitterness in your mouth, you have a bitterness in your heart because you know you're not right with God. You know you don't have a relationship with Jesus and you know deep down in your heart that you are separated from God. So the question I ask for you is, do you want the bitterness to be taken away? Do you want the bitterness of your sin to be replaced by the sweetness of forgiveness? If you want that this morning, if you thirst for that this morning, then come to Jesus as the only one who can take that away. Look at the tree, the tree of the cross, where Jesus died and rose again. So as you could have the newness of life, you could have the sweetness of salvation, you could have the freshness of having all of your sins forgiven. Listen to the scriptures this morning. Isaiah 55, 1. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, Buy wine and milk without money and without price. If you're thirsty this morning for salvation, the Bible says come to the waters. Jesus said in John 7, 37-38, On the last day of the great feast, on the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. If you're thirsty and you want salvation, Jesus has come to him. And then in Revelation twenty-two seventeen, 17, the spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. And all three of these passages of Scripture, the invitation is to come. Come to Jesus. So if you're here this morning and you've never come to Jesus, 
and you know in your heart, I've got this bitterness of sin and I need forgiveness, the invitation for you is to come to Jesus. Come to him and drink. Come to him and receive the sweetness of salvation. And here's the promise. If you're thirsty this morning for Jesus, he will satisfy you. Jesus has never turned away anybody that's come to him in repentance and faith. So if you come to Jesus today, he will save you. You can go from being bitter in your sins to experiencing the sweetness of salvation only because of the one tree, Jesus, that he died on the cross. So would you come to Jesus today? Let me ask you to bow your heads this morning. Lord Jesus, no matter where we are in our lives this morning, we all need to come to you. Some in this room for the very first time. Others, we come time and time again because we get thirsty. We get bitter. We get overwhelmed by our sin. And Jesus, you're the only one that can forgive us. You're the only one that can satisfy us. You're the only one that has overcome because you experienced the bitterness of our guilt and shame on the cross and you rose again. So Lord, my ultimate prayer this morning is that all of us would walk away today with the sweetness of salvation. That we would know for certain that we are saved, that we are forgiven and that, Lord, you have done a work in our hearts to give us eternal life through your cross and through your resurrection. So, Lord, as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper this morning, as we commune with you by participating in the Lord's table, would we be thirsty for you? Would we be hungry for you? And as we eat the bread and drink the cup, would it be a visible and a spiritual reminder to us of our desperate need for King Jesus? And so, Lord, we ask that you would bless our time together as we partake of communion. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.